Welcome to Full Scope, a weekly medical podcast designed to teach, inspire, and encourage listeners to question everything they know. I'm your host, Bill Brandenburg. On December 31st, 2019, the Wuhan China Municipal Health Commission reported a cluster of cases of pneumonia. Just 13 days later, the Chinese CDC released the genetic sequence of a virus, which we call SARS-CoV-2, that causes the infection COVID-19. Less than one year later, in mid to late December of 2020, we were receiving the first doses of a new vaccine against this dangerous virus. Join me on this unprecedented story of development of a new type of vaccine called an mRNA vaccine. This novel technology allows us to create new vaccines with just the genetic sequence of a given organism. This mechanism for vaccination has been on the drawing board since 1990, but until now, successful vaccines had not been created using this mechanism. I would like to thank every scientist who's been working on this technology for the last 25 or so years, and I'd like to especially thank everyone involved in the development of these new SARS-CoV-2 vaccines. What you have done is unprecedented and should be celebrated. Normally, it takes 10 to 15 years to create a new vaccine. The fastest in history prior to these COVID-19 vaccines was the mumps vaccine, which took four years. This is crazy, people. The efficacy and safety are remarkable as well. Today on the podcast... We're going to talk about the central dogma biology, or the flow of information from DNA to RNA to proteins. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the spike protein, the target used to make a vaccine against COVID-19. Then we're going to talk about mRNA vaccines in general, a little bit about how they work and what they do and why they represent such a great tool in an era where pandemics are becoming more common. Finally, we're going to discuss two pivotal phase three clinical trials, which led to emergency use authorization for two vaccines, namely the BNT162B2 vaccine created by Pfizer and BioNTech and the mRNA 1273 vaccine created by Moderna with help from several different public research organizations. This is a crazy story. This is one of the coolest things that's happened in infectious disease and medical science in a long time. Viruses are not able to reproduce themselves on their own. They require the help of cells from other organisms. They use the hardware, the molecular hardware, within other cells in order to reproduce themselves and spread. Aside from viruses, 
all other organisms utilize a molecule called DNA or deoxyribonucleic acid as the blueprint for making molecules and proteins within that cell. Generally, what is called the biological central dogma is followed, and it goes like this. DNA in the nucleus is transcribed into RNA. RNA, or riboxynucleic acid, is a very similar molecule to DNA, but it's less stable, tends to break down, tends to be more prone to mutation. Generally, using the code from the DNA, a complementary messenger RNA strand is created. This strand then travels outside of the nucleus and into the cytoplasm, where it joins up with structures called ribosomes, which then translate that messenger RNA into proteins. This is done using transfer RNAs, the ribosomes, and other molecular structures. But this sequence, DNA to RNA to protein, is referred to as the central dogma. For a long time, we didn't think this went any other way until we discovered HIV, reverse transcriptase, a virus that turned its RNA into DNA, and then blew our minds. Just goes to show you, even the most powerful dogmas can be broken. As we discussed in the last episode about vaccines, all vaccines in current use basically rely on the injection or swallowing of proteins or other antigens on a whole organism or part of that organism to then create an immune response. We are actually injecting the structures which we want to educate our immune systems to recognize and attack if they show up again. The mRNA vaccines, which have recently been rolled out, work differently. Instead of injecting the actual protein or antigen, we're injecting the code, the code to build that antigen. And in these, we're injecting mRNA, messenger RNA. What these vaccines consist of is a lipid nanoparticle inside of which is a messenger RNA against the spike protein normally covering the outside of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. This nanoparticle is then taken up by our immune cells. Inside the cell, the mRNA is released. Just like the virus, we utilize the molecular building structures within the human cells to turn this messenger RNA into protein into the spike protein. This technology, for the first time, has worked, and it has worked incredibly well. This vaccine, or these vaccines, I should say, create SARS-CoV-2 neutralizing antibodies, as well as antigen-specific CD8 and TH4 type CD4 T cell responses. So you're getting both humoral and cellular immunity. On top of the excellent immune response, which is now no longer a theory, it's been shown, it's been proven, is the ability to start making this vaccine or these types of vaccines 
with just the genetic sequence of the organism you are trying to target. On January 12th of 2020, when the Chinese CDC released the sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, many companies got to work immediately. These companies were not starting from scratch. As we said initially, mRNA vaccines have been on the drawing board and people have been trying to develop them since the 1990s. In 2002, an epidemic began in China, the SARS-CoV-1 epidemic, SARS-1. We knew from this earlier epidemic some things about the structure of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and in particular, we knew that the spike protein, which covers the outside of the viral particle, would be a great target to go after for vaccination. Let's recap SARS-1 real quick. Between 2002 and 2004, there were 8,098 confirmed cases. The case fatality rate, meaning the number of people diagnosed with the disease who died, was 9%. However, in the age group greater than 60, it was 50%. Compare that to the SARS-CoV-2 virus from a fatality standpoint, and there is no comparison. 774 people died in total from the SARS-1 virus. Luckily, in 2004, it kind of just disappeared. We think this infection may have came from a, a small mammal, a palm civet. It's basically a three kilogram, almost raccoon looking species, really common in Southeast Asia. However, later, the SARS-1 virus was found in a number of different mammals. Okay, so back to January 12th. China releases their genetic sequence of SARS-CoV-2. The pharmaceutical companies get to work. China also gets to work. They build a gigantic hospital in just a matter of days. We're talking a 270,000 square foot modular hospital in a matter of days. All the while, the Western world and Western countries seem to not be taking this thing too seriously. Luckily, our pharmaceutical companies did, and they started working. Now, the spike protein is a protein made up of two subunits that surrounds the outside of the SARS-CoV-2 viral particle. It's a glycosylated protein. Like we said, there's two subunits. One of them binds to the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 receptor, the ACE2 receptor. The other subunit facilitates viral cell membrane fusion with the host membrane, allowing the virus to enter into the cell. We had our target, we had the genome, it was time to get to work. And this is the beauty of these mRNA vaccines. Once you get the genome sequence, you can literally build a vaccine in a matter of weeks. Now that we have our proof of concept, this is going to be even faster next time. And when we see that next bad pandemic, something that could be much worse than SARS-CoV-2, we'll be ready to roll out technology to save all of us in just a matter of weeks. However, before these vaccines are prime time and ready to go to the public, we need to perform clinical trials to assure that the vaccines are both safe 
and effective. This is usually done in a stepwise fashion. A clinical trial is a research trial involving human subjects designed to add to our medical knowledge. This often involves drugs and therapeutics. And as we said, it's often pursued in a stepwise fashion, generally in what we call phases. In clinical trials today in the United States, we generally go through four clinical phases. Trials, as we say. There is a pre-trial phase when we do experiments on the medication but or vaccine, but this is not done in humans. This may occur in animals, this may occur in cell cultures, this occurs outside of the human body. In phase one clinical trials, we're really concerned with two things, safety and dosing. As we move up from phase one to phase four clinical trials, you get increasing numbers of people. So in phase one, you've got a very small group of people and you're really just trying to figure out, is this safe and at what dose do side effects get to be too much? In phase two clinical trials, you get a bigger group of people. Maybe in phase one you just had 20 people, but maybe in phase two you have 300 people. This time you look for safety as well, but also efficacy. You check to figure out if this vaccine or medication is actually doing what you want it to do. In phase three trials, you get an even bigger, bigger group. It's often performed as a randomized controlled trial. Sometimes we compare it to the standard of care. For instance, if it's a cancer, we compare it to the best cancer medicine currently available for that particular cancer. Or we might just compare it to a placebo. We know the placebo works about 30% of the time, and so in order for a drug or vaccine to actually work, we need it to beat that. Oftentimes, basically, three clinical trials are thousands of people. This is often the important step needed to get approval from the FDA. Following the vaccine phase three clinical trials and two months of subsequent observation, the FDA granted the two vaccines we're gonna talk about emergency use authorization. But they are required in order to get full authorization to carry out their study for a full two years before it gets full approval. In phase four clinical trials, we're looking at the medicine or vaccine or treatment post-clinical trials. We're looking at it out in the real world. We're seeing if it continues to work, if it continues to be safe. If it does what these companies or researchers said it did in the preceding one, two, and three phase clinical trials. This is how we approve drugs. This is how we approve vaccines. This is how we learn if they're safe and how we figure out if they're effective. In December of 2020, just 11 months after the Chinese CDC made public the genetic sequence of SARS-CoV-2, two mRNA vaccines were granted emergency youth authorization in the United States. Those were the BNT162B2 vaccine made by Pfizer and BioNTech, as well as the mRNA1273 vaccine made by Moderna. That is absolutely insane, considering they had to build it, 
tested in animals and then tested in humans in three different clinical trials and then follow it for at least two months following the third clinical trial. Wow, people. I want to take the rest of this podcast and go over the phase three clinical trial research used to get emergency youth authorization for these two vaccines. Let's start with Pfizer's vaccine, the BNT162B2. First of all, what's in this vaccine? Well, the active ingredient, as we've said, is the messenger RNA. There is a messenger RNA segment that is 4,284 nucleotides long. It contains the code for the spike protein, as well as other sequences like a 5' prime cap and a poly-A tail that just helps our cells know to start building that particular protein. In the BNT162B2 vaccine, there's actually a little bit of a mutant protein. Uh, the spike protein has been changed at two codons, 986 and 987, and uh, proline has been replaced with a leucine and a valine at those two uh, places respectively. And the reason being from the manufacturer at least was to change the shape of the protein and hopefully induce a little bit better um, immune reaction from us. The vaccine also contains a lipid nanoparticle. This essentially encloses the vaccine just like a phospholipid cell wall might enclose a normal human cell. Um, these four lipids include cholesterol, the other of which I am not as familiar with and have very long names. Um, none of these four lipids have any concerns from a safety standpoint from anything that I've read uh, from any sources. The vaccine also includes dibasic sodium phosphate dihydrate, monobasic potassium phosphate, potassium chloride, sodium chloride, sucrose, and water. So pretty clean vaccine. Actually, I'd say really clean. Um, getting into the trial, the first, I guess, thing I like to mention is that this was funded actually by Pfizer and BioNTech. That always is something to be concerned about because pharmaceutical companies stand a lot to gain if their trials work out well, and they stand a ton to lose if their trials don't. I think in this situation, we've got a blockbuster vaccine. It works incredibly well and is extremely safe. And so there's not a lot of debate in this particular instance as to whether or not we should be getting and using this vaccine. But sometimes these companies are trying to get much more marginal drugs passed through the FDA, things that maybe hardly work at all or maybe even don't work. And they end up having to massage the numbers to make the efficacy look better, to make the side effects look better. And when you get a marginal drug, you want to look really carefully into these studies because a little tweak here and there can make, make a big difference, uh, if you will. In this case, not so big of a deal. The other downfall that's, that's not really a downfall, but just something to be aware of in both of these two vaccine trials is that they only were required to look two months out from the uh, second dose. And one of the problems with that is that there is the possibility that things could come up later on that we weren't aware of initially. And so in order for these to become fully passed with, with, um, with full FDA approval, they're actually going to have to be watched for a full two years. And then at that point, I think they'll be granted full FDA approval. Right now, remember, they're operating under an emergency use authorization. 
A few other things I just didn't like as much about the Pfizer trials. They didn't mention what the placebo was. I assume it was just saline. And then their table one, when you actually looked at the two groups, the one that got the vaccine and the other that got the treatment, there wasn't a lot of detail. They didn't include anything about chronic diseases, and they didn't include ranges for things like age, which just kind of annoyed me. But overall, I would say this Pfizer paper was an example of an extremely well-done study that had a really good efficacy, really low side effect, and as far as the writing goes, it's just one of the cleanest papers I've seen that just kind of drops the bomb. We've got some real stuff here, and people should pay attention. As far as the trial goes, this was a placebo-controlled, double-blind, randomized controlled trial. As we said, it was for a phase three clinical trial. Participants were split into one of two groups. They either got the actual vaccine or they got a placebo. This was done at 152 sites worldwide. Big study. 21,720 people in both the treatment group and the placebo group. So over 40,000 people were tested. They looked for a number of different things. But the primary outcome, the thing that they wanted to know the most was how many people got COVID-19 seven days after the second dose of vaccine. So remember, everybody got two doses, 30 micrograms, 21 days apart, and it was only after seven days after the second dose did we start looking into the primary endpoint, and that was symptomatic COVID-19 infection that was then confirmed with a positive COVID test either during symptoms or four days before they started or four days after they resolved. And as far as efficacy for that primary endpoint, in the vaccine group, there were eight cases of symptomatic confirmed COVID-19, and in the placebo group, there were 162 cases of symptomatic confirmed COVID-19 infection. This gave a confidence interval, which is basically just looking at a ratio between how many people got it in the placebo group and how many people got it in the vaccine group, between 89.9 and 97.3%, and that's regarding efficacy. And so the number that they sh they've been spitting out is 95% efficacy. Getting this vaccine will prevent 95% of COVID-19 cases, at least in the first few months of getting the vaccine. This is one heck of a result. To put it in perspective, the FDA required that companies that wanted emergency use authorization for their COVID-19 vaccine had to have at least 50% efficacy with the bottom number of the confidence interval range being no lower than 30%. Well, the bottom number on the confidence interval for this trial was 89.9%. So much better than the FDA required to be approved and pretty, pretty impressive overall. Uh, very impressive. Another endpoint that they looked at was how many cases were prevented after of COVID-19 after just one dose. And what they noticed is that the number of COVID cases between the treatment group and the placebo group began to really split at 12 days. 
So there were basically um, 10 COVID cases after the first dose, and only one of those were in the treatment group. So it appears that this even starts to work even even long before the primary endpoint after that second dose, seven days in. So really, really good results overall. As far as adverse events, um, there were 27% or sorry, 27% of people in the treatment group had adverse events and 12% in the placebo group did. The vast majority of all these adverse events were just pain in the arm. Um, sometimes a little bit of tenderness, maybe some warmth, maybe a little bit of redness, but mostly just pain in the arm. People also recorded um, low-grade fevers and fatigue. Um, usually those were mild and resolved in a few days. Overall, this was really, really well tolerated. There were four what they call severe adverse events. Um, which I guess people then ended up not getting the second dose. One was a shoulder injury related to injection. Don't know what happened there, but uh, maybe got a little too happy with that needle. One was an axillary lymphadenopathy, which I assume was fairly severe. People do get lymphadenopathy as kind of a, a less severe symptom, but this must have been worse. The scariest one was a paroxysmal ventricular arrhythmia. And then the last one was a right leg paresthesia. So kind of all all um, four different things. There were four cases of Bell's palsy in the treatment group and um, zero in the placebo group. Keep in mind that at baseline in our population, there are between one and four cases of Bell's palsy for every 10,000 people per year. And so statistically, it is possible that this was just the baseline rate of Bell's palsy and the vaccine had absolutely nothing to do with this. And in fact, when we talked about some of those weird neurological things like Guillain-Barre last episode, it's possible that the vaccines may have nothing to do with those. That um, it's just because so many people get these vaccines that they end up coming up just on a on a population standpoint that they would have anyway. And so there is correlation, but remember, um, correlation does not necessarily imply causation. But we did see more Bell's palsy in the treatment group, so something to be aware of and something to think about for sure. Overall deaths in the trial, there were six deaths, two in the treatment group, four in the placebo group. None of these deaths were related to COVID-19. They are all from other causes. Um, so probably just the baseline rate of death when you're doing a study on 40,000 people of all different age groups. This phase three clinical trial did not report any severe allergic reactions or anaphylaxis. I've heard that there have been some cases post-trial, but none in the actual clinical trial. So pretty crazy. One of the things that you probably heard about regarding the Pfizer vaccine um, is that it has to be stored at very low temperatures. Uh, that is minus 70 degrees Celsius for long-term storage. You can take it out for five days and put it in a regular refrigerator pro five days before administering it. But this is kind of a limitation that uh, you know, makes it hard to distribute and roll out. The manufacturer did say in the paper that they're hoping by uh, tweaking some of the uh, preservatives and ingredients and doing more studies that they can probably get rid of the need to keep it at such low storage temperatures. But overall, big win, 95% efficacy. All of the side effects, for the most part, were, were mild. And uh, this is definitely a vaccine that you're going to want to get if you haven't already.
The next vaccine we're going to talk about that also uh, recently got emergency use authorization following completion or, or uh, following the first part of a phase three clinical trial was the Moderna vaccine, the mRNA-1273 vaccine. This vaccine is also made up of the mRNA protein uh, or the mRNA gene coding for the spike protein. I don't believe there are any amino acid substitutions in the Moderna version. It also contains five different lipids, one of which is cholesterol, the other four of which I'm less familiar with. On top of that, there is tromethamine, tromethamine hydrochloride, acetic acid, sodium acetate, sucrose, and probably water, though it didn't list it. Um, I wanted to bring up some strengths of this of this paper over the other one. One is that there was an independent data and safety monitoring board that oversaw basically everything. So instead of the company, the one who's going to make a bunch of money deciding when somebody had a side effect or how to interpret or how to use and interpret certain numbers, this was done by an independent board, and that really adds a lot of weight to the the study in the paper and as a as a doctor this is what I really want to see I want to see outside agencies really confirming and validating uh, the efficacy and the safety of any given medication in the future when we're a better society I think that'll be the standard is that you'll have to use a, a third party to uh, test and, and validate your drug for both efficacy and safety uh, they mentioned that they used a saline placebo, so I like that. They had a much more robust uh, table one, so they, they really looked at subgroups more rigorously, at least in the publication. They broke out um, some some comorbidities that they expected people to have worse COVID with, like morbid obesity, diabetes, pulmonary disease, etc. And then they also included age ranges, which I really appreciate. I saw that, that some people in the vaccine were up to 95 years old. All right, let's get into the nuts and bolts of this phase three clinical trial. This was a double-blinded, placebo-controlled, phase three randomized clinical trial. It was done at 99 centers across the United States, starting in July and finishing October 23rd of 2020. There were 15,210 participants in each group. Participants were randomized to the treatment group, which received two injections, each with 100 micrograms of active ingredient 28 days apart, and then a placebo group, which received saline injections 28 days apart. The primary endpoint for this trial was the development of symptomatic, laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 14 days after the second dose. So how'd they do in this trial? Well, they did remarkably similar to the results in the other trial. There were 185 cases of COVID-19, symptomatic COVID-19 in the placebo group, and only 11 cases of symptomatic COVID-19 in the treatment group. This basically equals a 94.1% efficacy. Remember in the Pfizer trial, they had a 95% efficacy, so very close. And the confidence interval for the Moderna trial was 89.3 to 96.8%.
Remember, the FDA wanted a vaccine more than 50% efficacious that had a lower limit of efficacy of 30%. Both of these vaccines had lower limits on their confidence interval around 90%, so preventing 9 out of 10 cases of COVID-19 at the minimum. That is extraordinary. Both trials also looked at how many people develop COVID-19 after the first dose. And in this trial, between days 1 and 42, which is that pre-primary endpoint time period, there were 7 COVID cases in the treatment group and 65 in the placebo group. And these also diverged at about 12 days. So it seems like after 12 days, even after one dose, your body is, is uh, recognizing... SARS-CoV-2 enabled to mount an adaptive immune response. All right, let's talk about side effects. What was going wrong? Well, honestly, not much. This trial notes that severe adverse events were rare and that the incidence was similar in both groups, meaning that whether you gave them the placebo or the treatment group, their chances of having a severe adverse event were very similar. 84.2% of people in the treatment group reported side effects as opposed to 19.8 in the placebo group. I think this is an interesting difference and, and this is quite a, a larger number in comparison to the side effect in the treatment group noted in the Pfizer trial, 27% namely. And I think that probably stems from the some of the fact that that was an industry performed trial that was using industry to measure the adverse endpoints. I think depending on what you call an adverse endpoint, you can have a lot of people with arm pain in your adverse group, or you can have a bunch of people that you say, oh, that's nothing, they don't say anything else about it, and then you don't count that as an adverse effect. Um, and, and I think that is kind of well highlighted here. But most of those 84.2% who had adverse effects in the Moderna trial had some arm pain. Um, pain after the injection and, and nothing more. A much, much smaller percent of people had things like headache, low-grade fevers, fatigue. Typically, these only lasted for a few days. Um, there were a few people who had severe uh, headaches and severe fatigue, which caused them not to get another dose. This was less than a half a percent of people in the treatment group and 0.2% of people in the placebo group. Um, but those are really the only severe reactions. Of note, there were three people that died in the placebo group and two people in the treatment group. All of those five deaths were of unrelated causes. But of great note, there was one person in the placebo group who ended up dying of COVID-19. In fact, throughout the trial, there were 30 cases of severe COVID-19 infection all of which occurred in the placebo group. And so not only does this vaccine appear to be preventing symptomatic COVID-19 cases in general, but it also appears to be preventing severe cases of COVID-19, which is really what most of us are actually worried about. We don't want people having to go to the hospital, and we don't want people dying from this or living with serious long-term comorbidities. So... That's kind of the, the basis of the trial. I wanted to make a note about um, the fact that in this trial there were three cases of Bell's palsy, uh, 
in the treatment group and one case in the placebo group. Again, this is not statistically significant over the baseline rate of Bell's palsy in the population, but maybe a little bit of mounting evidence that uh, it could predispose you to Bell's palsy, which is a cranial nerve, seven, uh, facial paralysis, usually temporary, usually comes all the way back. Again, this happens to one in four, one to four people per 10,000 at baseline per year. So kind of uh, further study to look into what the correlation is with Bell's palsy and the COVID-19 vaccine. Whatever the relationship is, the numbers are way too good in the positive category and way too bad in the negative category for you to not get the vaccine either way. Remember, the Moderna vaccine also has another has a full two years that it has that it's going to be watched very carefully. We're just entering like month three of that, so um, a lot more watching to do. But things are looking really great early on. Uh, another good thing about the the Moderna vaccine is that it doesn't have to be stored in super cold storage. You can put it in your regular two to eight degrees Celsius vaccine refrigerator and call it good. All right, well, that is the messenger RNA vaccines, new technology that is no longer on the drawing board, but is now in real production and saving real lives right now. We've got recaps of both of the recent phase three clinical trials regarding Pfizer's and Moderna's vaccine. Both of these work tremendously well. Thank you to every single scientist who's involved with this. I know I recently got my Moderna vaccine several weeks ago. Yes, it did cause some arm pain, but that arm pain went away, and I'm feeling more protected now and looking forward to my next dose. If anybody has any thoughts, questions, suggestions, please email me. If anyone has any feedback, please rate the podcast or email me or whatever. Again, I really appreciate that you're listening. I would like to caution you to the fact that there is a lot of weird stuff going around about the vaccine and potential dangers. Most of this stuff has no basis in science or anything else. It's more like somebody in their basement is making stuff up in order to grab headlines. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Full Scope Podcast. You can find a lecture summary, key points, and any references on our website, fullscope.org. Additionally, this is the official podcast of Wonder Medicine PLLC, a for-profit medical clinic located in Boise, Idaho. As Carly and I own the clinic and draw revenue from it, we thought we should uh, d- disclose it as a conflict of interest. Disclaimer alert! It's a trap! The Full Scope podcast was designed and created for educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or provide clinical knowledge specific to the care of any actual patient or population of patients. If you are in need of medical advice or treatment, contact a physician. The views and opinions portrayed on Full Scope are Dr. Brandenburg's. They do not represent the views or opinions of Wander Medicine Clinic, any of the academic institutions mentioned on the Full Scope podcast or website, or any of the hospitals which Dr. Brandenburg has or currently works at.